I read uh, an article that a friend uh, posted uh, maybe a week or two ago, and I got to reading it this week, and the title of it uh, was The Fading of Forgiveness. And as I read this article, it was um, encouraging, uh, convicting, uh, but also disheartening in some ways as I read it. it. The main idea of the article, I won't do it justice because it's actually fairly lengthy and goes into a lot of things, but the main idea is that forgiveness and reconciliation are being replaced in our culture with a new virtue of vindictiveness. And I read that and thought, ugh. And and I just, I kept going back to the article and kind of thinking through some of the implications of what the author was saying. And I think what he was saying in it is true. And and I won't be able to kind of lay out all of the the points and what they were after in it. But I just want to share two excerpts from you this morning as it kind of pertains to what we're going to talk about. And the first one says, uh, it's a pastor writing. He says, the great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. And he says, social media serves as crack for moralists. There's no high like the high you get from punishing malefactors. And then he goes on to talk about why that that's the case and why that's so rampant in our culture. And so a little later he says, forgiveness is a form of self-renunciation, giving up your perfect right to pay back to the person what they did to you. This directly opposes how Americans are now taught to think and live. We are taught self-realization and assertion that your happiness, that your interests, that your needs always come first. And a culture promoting self-maximization is one that pits self-fulfillment against self-sacrifice, which will usually produce revenge or withdrawal as a response to any perceived mistreatment. And so large portions of our culture are now engaging in that idea or kind of built around that idea that you assert yourself and, and that revenge is good and, and coming after people and that's the way you should do it. And the idea of self-sacrifice, the idea of forgiveness and reconciliation is like, well, that doesn't work. And that doesn't go with what we're being taught in so many ways. And so I read that article and i tell you, as I thought about it, it was disheartening in that I read it and I thought my experience recently is like, this is very true. I didn't read it and go, oh, I think he's wrong and he's off. It was like, well, yeah. But then as I started to think about it and really think about it this week in light of our text, it was disheartening because it's the exact opposite of what scripture says and who we are called to be in Christ. It's the exact opposite of our identity in Jesus. This idea that I put myself first and I revenge and vindictiveness and go after people rather than loving people in the way Christ has loved us. And so that was very frustrating to think about. And in light of that, or disheartening, particularly studying this text and thinking about it this week, but then disheartening in that, sadly, the predominant culture has made its way into the church. And so the line where he says, we usually, uh, when we give up on this idea of reconciliation and forgiveness and we push ourself and what we want, self-fulfillment against self-sacrifice, will usually produce revenge or withdrawal. I went, yeah, that's about right. I've seen that. I've seen that in the last year quite a bit. I've seen that in the last year quite a bit, even in our own church. And so I read that and went, ugh. 
But that's not what God's word says. It's not what Romans 14 says. And so I, I was thinking about that in light of, and I start with that article because so much of what he's talking about there is vitally relevant. Paul's arguments, what God's word says here today in Romans 14, it's not just something they were dealing with in the church in Rome 2,000 years ago. It's something we're still dealing with. And we still need to have God's word stand over us and what it says. And so this is the way I want us to look at Romans 14. And I'll kind of give you lay of the land for this week and really even next week because we're not going to get through all of the whole chapter. We're just going to look, hit the first half. But this is the way I want us to look at it. First, what is the problem here that he's presenting? And we'll kind of think about it historically and what they were dealing with, but make some connections even to where we are today. So what is the problem? Second, what's undergirding the problem? What are the heart issues that's leading this to this being such a problem? Thirdly, we'll think about what is the way out. And I'm going to do that kind of briefly today just for the sake of time. We're going to touch on that. What is the way out? And then next week we'll pick up with that, but then also start to think, well, how do we practically day-to-day combat this in the way we live? Because that's the second half of Romans 14 that we're going to look at next week. And so all of that kind of goes together, but you'll get the first two and a little bit of the third point today in the first part, and then next week we'll pick up with it. And so what is the problem here that he's talking about? Look at verses 1 through 3 with me here in Romans chapter 14. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. And so we're going to stop right there for just a second. And there's an argument going on here within the church. Uh, we often refer to Romans 14 as the weaker brother, stronger brother argument because he says there right at the beginning, the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But there's some historical things that are going on in the background that if we don't understand, we'll miss, we'll miss what he's talking about, right? Because, because you can read this and read it with your eyes today and say, well, the weak person eats only vegetables. Well, this is about vegetarians, right? This is about Andy. He's, he's the weak person. <laughs> we would totally miss the point if that's what we said. That is not true. That is not what this passage is about. What it's talking about, most scholars believe, is the background here is uh, that the holiness codes that we had in the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, God gave some specific uh, instructions for Israel and the way that they would live and what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. And all of it was part of what we call the holiness code or the cleanliness laws. And the idea was this. God gave them some specific ways and to handle their food and what to eat and what not to eat and the way to touch it and all these things to set them apart from the surrounding nations, to give them a national identity, to set them apart to God. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart to God, uh, to show that they were different in some ways. But then more importantly, he did this for them to see that they can't just walk into the presence of a holy God. And so he was alerting them to all these things that they were touching and they were seeing and they were eating and they were being part of and saying that you're becoming ritually unclean and you can't go into the presence of God like this. And so what God was doing, kind of like what we did, we've talked about with the law in the Old Testament, it alerts us to our need. And so he gave these very specific things to the people of Israel at this time in the Old Testament. But now as we move into the New Covenant and the New Testament, we see that those laws no longer apply to the church in the same way in terms of the the ritual laws, the cleanliness laws, the way that they approach the temple, 
all those things that were in place have now been fulfilled in Jesus. And that's the teaching we see throughout the New Testament. Jesus makes this point, uh, Matthew chapter 15. He says, it's not go, what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean, but that which comes out of it. And so what he's talking about is your words reveal your heart, that it's a spiritual condition. It's not the actual food that you eat that makes you unclean before God or unrighteous. It's your sin that does that. It's not food. And so he makes that point really clear. If you, if you read down in Romans 14, Paul makes the point in verse 14. He says, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So he's talking about a matter of conscience. We'll get to that in a second. But what he's saying is in Jesus, these things can't make you unclean because Jesus has fulfilled all the laws. He's done it perfectly. And now in him, you are made clean by grace through faith. And so what he's telling us is in Jesus that no amount of performance can ever do that, that only Christ can do that, that it's not through these laws and these rituals. And so you no longer as a believer in the New Testament age have to follow these holiness codes about what you eat and the way you handle things and what you touch like they did in the Old Testament. But the problem here in the church in Rome at this point is there's some people that are still uneasy with that. They've grown up for thousands of years, literally for 2,000 years plus of history, following these laws. And now they become a believer and they see Jesus as the fulfillment. And then the preaching starts to be, well, you don't have to do this now. We don't have to worship in the same way. You have a freedom that's in Christ. And they go, I don't feel comfortable with that. I think I'm still not going to eat pork or whatever, right? I'm not going to go there. I'm just not going to do that. And so what's happening is they're struggling with the New Testament reality. And so Paul says, in light of that, they're disagreeing on these things. Some are saying you can eat whatever. And he says they're perfectly justified to do so. And some are saying, I'm not going to eat those things. And he says, that's fine to welcome them. Don't make this a great, big, huge issue. Don't fight over it. But there's a couple things that we need to think about as we think about what he's talking about here. And so the, the, the main point here that he's driving at and that we're going to hit on today is this idea to not divide over secondary issues. It's not a matter of sin. It's not a matter of salvation. Don't make that this great big thing. But there's a couple things that we need to make sure that we see clearly as we do. He does call the one in verse one there, the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And so he does say one is stronger in faith and one is weaker in faith. And the one who is weaker in faith is not seeing the fullness of who they are in Jesus. Their conscience hasn't caught up to what is true of them in Jesus. And there's areas that they're still struggling with. And so there is a part of that hopefully as we grow, we continue to see the fullness of who God is and what he's doing. There is a stronger and weaker faith. But I want to make sure that we see they're both responding in faith. Neither one of them is in sin. Neither one of them is doing something wrong. In this case, they're both seeking to honor God. And it says that multiple times here. It says at the end of verse 5, talking about each one should be fully convinced in his mind. And then right after that, he says, the one who does observes in the honor of the Lord. says that over and over, the one who eats in the honor of the Lord. They're seeking to honor God in what their conscience is, is bearing witness on what they understand the gospel. They're not saying I'm saved by my eating or my not eating. They're just saying my conscience isn't clear on this issue. And so what he's telling us here is that it's not an issue of sin. And I want to make sure that we see that. He's not saying that one is sinning and one is not. They're both seeking to honor God. And it's a secondary issue that's not that important. 
And so when we start to think about what that looks like, right, being more cautious or or less cautious in the the scheme of things, it's not worth uh, dividing over. And so I was thinking about it in terms of uh, uh, my kids learning to drive. My oldest, uh, I'm now that age, has got his permit and he's learning to drive. And it's this whole new thing. I've I've just gone through this. God's teaching me patience and (laughs) God's sovereignty (laughs) uh, sliding over into that other seat and letting him take the wheel. But when you're learning to drive, you're uncomfortable with a lot of things because you don't have the experience and you haven't done it. whatever. And so you get on the highway, right? Uh, You get on the highway and maybe the speed limit's 65 and you get on and you're like, man, everybody's going really fast. Maybe you remember that when you were 16 or 15 or whatever it is. I remember the Merritt Parkway in Connecticut, concrete barriers on both sides, two lanes. And I got on there for the first time with my dad and it was horrifying, right? I'm going to sit right here in the right lane and I'm going to go 55 as people fly around me and give me the finger and honk at me and everything else. And you're like, oh, was I doing anything wrong? Was, was I breaking the law? Was I doing anything uh, that you would say, well, you can't do that. That's illegal. Well, no, I was operating in where I was comfortable at the moment, which is barely going 55, staying in the right lane right there, right? Now, freedom under the law, I could go 70 if the speed limit's 70, but I didn't feel comfortable, so I'm going to stay in that lane. That's kind of what he's talking about here. Some, their conscience is still bound and they don't see the fullness of what they are. And they go, you know what? I'm just not going to eat meat. But they're not breaking the law. They're not sinning. They're not doing anything wrong. Some are going, well, I'm going to eat meat and I'm going to enjoy it. And I'm not worried about that. And they're not doing anything wrong. And he's saying, don't look down on the other one because you see that secondary issue differently. In both case, neither one is sinning. It's just their conscience is uneasy. And so that's the argument that he's making. Welcome them in. Don't fight over those things that are secondary. If you're, but when we think about that, though, and you, you start to kind of unfold all the layers of this, even though their conscience is uneasy, we're called to still walk together, welcome them in, continue to have those conversations, continue to press the gospel into every area of our life. Say that all the time. So discipleship is growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life, continuing to see the freedom that we have in him. And as we walk that out together, hopefully those things just start to fall away. They're not that important. We're continuing to hold Jesus at the center. And Paul's calling us to live in that way. And so I want you just to make sure that you see, though, that the, that the situation here is that they're both seeking to honor God. No one is in sin. And the reason I say that, and it's important as we just think about what this is saying, we also see what it's not saying. It's not excusing sin, right? When he says here, as for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him in, but not to quarrel over opinions. If you're not careful, you quickly can take this passage out of context and make it say something it's not saying, right? Because he says, don't quarrel over opinions. And then you read in verse five, let each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You see that at the end of verse five, like the second half of it. Uh, He's telling you that you need to have this convinced in your own mind, that you're holding to this, that your conscience bears witness, that you're seeing the things in the way that you understand it. But the context here is they're both seeking to honor God and they're both doing things that fall under what God clearly says. I've heard people kind of make this weird argument. I say weird in the sense of heretical. It's a heretical argument to say that because my conscience bears witness and I'm okay with it, it's okay. 
And then they start to seek to do things that go directly against what God's word says. And they're now sinning and they're going, but my conscience is good with it. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not saying if somebody comes in and they're claiming to be a believer and then they're operating in sin and they go, but I'm okay with it, that you don't just go, okay, well, we're not going to argue over that. And that's fine. You do what you want to do and your conscience is good with it. That's not true. We're still called to hold each other to what scripture says. We're still called to speak the truth to one another. And so there's a continuum on those things where we don't want to fight over different areas of it. But there is a point where we draw a line. We say, well, that has now stepped into sin. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I know a lot of believers on both sides of whether they will drink or not drink. I have a lot of friends throughout my life that are teetotalers. They don't drink any alcohol ever for any reason. And that's fine. There's nothing that you're doing there that is in sin. You're saying, I've, I've known people that say, I'm going to honor God by not doing that. I've known people that say, I'm going to honor God by doing that because I know I have a problem with alcohol or there's a problem with alcohol in my family and it's not worth it to me. I want to honor God and I want to make sure that I protect that. And so I'm not going to drink. Great. Praise God. Honor him in that way. I know friends that really love like certain craft beer or certain wines and they're wine tasting people and they love those things and they drink in that way. And they do it in moderation and they do it in a way in which they're honoring God in the sense of God has given us this gift and I want to honor him in that, but I'm not going to go over the line to where I'm now inebriated. And you go, great. And then there's another category where you can say, well, I love to drink and I think it's great. And I get fall down drunk multiple times a week. And my conscience is clear with that. And I'm going to continue to do that. I'm going to honor God in that way. And that's where we go. Well, no, the Bible says, don't do that. Calls us to be sober minded, to have things in moderation, to not get to that place where it's controlling us and it's taking us to a place where we're not in our faculties. And so there is a line there where we would say, and that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying, well, because you're okay with it in your conscience, you just do whatever you want. He's saying in the areas that are secondary, where they're both honoring God, one might be more cautious than the other, but they're both not breaking the law. They're not in the sense of breaking God's law. They're not now in sin. They're seeking to honor God. He says, don't fight over those things. And so I want us just to think about the problem that's here. They're making an issue out of secondary things that are not sin, right? I mean, he looks right there at the beginning. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel, right? And the implication there is there's, there's some fighting going on over secondary things. And he says, don't do that. Don't divide over those things. Right? We see this in a lot of Paul's letters. He's saying this over and over. Your unity is in Christ. Do not cut off fellowship for things that are non-biblical mandates. Certainly don't cut off fellowship for things that are secondary that were, if you hold this view and I hold this view and neither one is sin and we're both seeking to honor God, don't let that be this issue that makes us divide. And so as I was thinking about just that, how, how easy, as I read that article this week, how easy it is for us to do those kinds of things, to make it about ourself and wanting to be right, right? I, that quote that steps out, sticks out to me, social media is crack for the moralists, that we want to attack people and we get joy out of telling them how wrong they are and how right I am. And sadly, I see that happening in the church, fighting over things that are non-essential, that are not important, but I'm ready to go to war over this thing and continue to fight over it. And he says, don't do that. And so it's so easy for us to get into that. We're all susceptible to it. 
The sinfulness of our heart wants to be right. And we get revved up about certain things or a certain conviction we have. Or maybe even it's an issue that you've spent a lot of time thinking about. Or some issue that's totally secondary, but that you've read a lot and you think about it a lot and you're really invested in it. And so now it's taken this part in your life that you want to go and defend it because you've thought about it a whole lot. But then we start fighting over things that aren't really that important. And it happens all the time and it starts to get into everything. And I was thinking about it in light of this text and it's happened a lot, sadly, in the last year. Everything gets politicized. It's happened a lot in the last year over things like COVID. How do we respond and what do we do and how much should we open things up and how much should we close things down and how much should we wear masks and how much should we not? And then people get so angry over it. And suddenly it makes its way into the church. And it's not even an issue of a sin issue or a non-sin issue. It's not a primary issue in our identity in Jesus. But yet people are dividing over something that is so secondary. And what he's telling us here, what God's word is telling us here, is don't do that. Don't get to the place where that's why we're dividing. We have a unity in Christ that far exceeds secondary things like this. And so he's calling us to to live that way, to welcome them in in the way that God has welcomed us in. We're not going to make that a dividing line. And so as the church, we should be standing in the middle going, we're not going to fight over that. We're going to continue to walk together in these things and have these conversations and love the Lord together and continue to do so. But obviously what happens, and I've seen it this year, Paul was seeing it in the church in Rome The sinfulness of our heart kind of creeps up in that and it makes it so easy for us to do just that, to fight over things that we don't need to fight over. So why do we do that? What's the heart issue that undergirds this and brings this to light? And so when we think about it, a couple ways I want you to think about it, and I think kind of foundationally, there's a couple levels to this, but the the base level, the foundational level is this is a gospel issue. It's an identity in Christ issue. So look at what he says in verse three. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. And then look at verse seven and eight for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And so he says, look at the way you have been welcomed in the way that you welcome others. Right? So how have you been welcomed? How has God and Jesus welcomed you? How have you been brought back into God's family despite your sinfulness, despite your rebellion against God? How has he done that? At greatest cost to himself. Jesus comes and does for us what we can't do for, our, for ourselves. And he lays his life down for us. And it's by grace, through faith, you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. And that is true of every single one of us that is part of God's family. All of us, without exception. The way that we come in is by grace and what Jesus has done for us. That's how we've been welcomed in. That's who we are in Jesus. That's our identity. And as such, we then understand that none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. We are the Lord's, right? I've said this a lot this year. We're talking about the New City Catechism and the big questions and answers we do. The very first one. What is our only hope in life and death? We're not our own. We belong to God. 
That's who we are in Jesus. We have been bought with a price. We are not our own. We belong to God. And it's only when we begin to forget that, when we begin to forget that everything that I am and everything that I have is not mine and it's God's, that I welcome and love people in the same way that Jesus welcomed and loved me, which is he gave of himself and he laid his life down, that he totally emptied himself of everything that he was due on my behalf. That's who we are in Jesus. And so we too are called to be the same, to love people in the same way. But when we miss that, the heart of our sinfulness, instead of it's not about me, it's about Jesus and who he is and my identity in him, the sinfulness of my heart goes, no, 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 it's about me. And I get to decide. And I'm the one that's right. And I get to tell people when they're wrong. And I get to decide where that line is. And I, I, and we start to do that. And we start to operate that way. And I would just remind, this this is a gospel issue. This is an identity issue in who we are in Jesus. And so it's so easy for us to forget that and to slip into making it all about ourselves. And as soon as we do, as soon as we miss that, we miss our foundational truth of who we are in Jesus, that it's by grace through faith, that we're bought with a price, that it's all his doing. Then as soon as that starts to slide over, kind of self-deception creeps in and then pride takes hold. It's not all about him. I added some to this. It's really about me and what I think. And I'm pretty smart and I figured this out. And all of a sudden, pride and arrogance takes root. When we're not clinging to the gospel in everything, that it's all Jesus and what he's done, that's where I kind of step center stage. Look at me. And I've really thought about this. And I'm really smart. And I've seen this. And I understand what's going on. And all of a sudden, I start to let that take hold of my heart. And they're so wrong. They're definitely the weaker brother. I'm the stronger brother. I see how this works. And I start to operate that way. And I start to think that way and it comes and it creeps into my heart. But the problem is, and this is for all of us, every single one of us has blind spots. The sinfulness of our flesh and our heart, every single one of us, when we start to slide into that place of arrogance, we have blind spots that lead us to miss parts. And so right here in Romans chapter 14, he's talking about the weaker brother and the stronger brother and the way that they're seeing food. Most likely scholars are putting this, that it's, it's the Jewish Christians that are not seeing the fullness and still wanting to go back to those old ways of thinking, the way that they used to do things and they can't get their head outside of that. And so they have this blind spot that's kind of leading them to go, no, 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 I can't do that. But then if you flip over to first Corinthians eight and you don't have to turn there now, but in first Corinthians eight, Paul makes almost the exact same argument but he's making it from a different side because he's talking about those in Corinth. They don't want to eat meat that they buy in the market because it could have been offered to idols, pagan idols. And that was their background. And so they're like, well, I don't want to eat that meat because that might be doing something. And Paul's going, no, you can eat the meat. But if that's the, the struggle you have in your conscience, don't eat the meat. And it's the same argument he's making. It's okay. You're not sinning by not doing it. That's okay if you don't want to do it. But here's my point. In 1 Corinthians 8, it's pagan Gentile believers that were in this pagan culture. In Romans chapter 14, it's devout Jews, and they're both missing the same thing from different areas. Totally different backgrounds, but they both have the same blind spot. And it's because of their culture. It's because of their background. And so every single one of us has different blind spots where we miss pieces. But when we're not clinging to our identity in Jesus, 
And then my pride and arrogance take center stage. And look at how smart I am. I miss that I have these blind spots. And that's where I get into trouble. Suddenly I start drawing lines, dividing lines where God doesn't draw them. And I go, well, I'm not going to talk to anybody that believes X. Well, God doesn't say that. That's not the way he welcomed you. It's not the way he welcomed me. But I want to put it in places that God doesn't put it. And we're not called to be that way. That's what he's saying. Don't do that. Welcome them in in the same way that God has welcomed you. And so first it's a gospel issue. But then as we're not seeing our identity in Jesus, our pride wells up and it becomes this thing of our arrogance and our pride. We're missing pieces of it. And we want to make it all about us and what we think. But then the last part, and there's a third part of this, is it it gets worse. We go from missing who we are in Jesus to this arrogance to then the, the, the last part, we start to judge those around us. Verse four, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Or verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? When you make it all about you and what you think and what your line is and what's right and what's wrong and they're wrong and they're bad. And then all of a sudden starts to come this judgment. I can't believe that person would believe X. And then you start to attribute a whole bunch of things that maybe aren't even true. And so I say this. And I'll be honest, I, I, I'm speaking a little bit from hurt here. And I don't ever want to do that, but I think it helps make the point in this. I've had people in the last year accuse me of things that I don't believe at all. That I wouldn't even say nowhere near what I believe or anything I've ever said. Because we make a decision, even in our church, on how we're going to go forward. We're going to wear masks because we want to love people and care for them in the other way. And then people send me an email attacking me and telling me what I'm doing, what my real agenda is. I'm going, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's not true. But instead of coming and saying, why would we do it like this? And please help me understand. I'm going to assume the worst. I'm going to attack you and then I'm going to withdraw. And so when I read that article this week, I went, yeah, I've seen this happen more than once. I've seen it happen more than once in the church. And that's what happens when we remove our identity from who we are in Jesus. And we start to make it about us. And I'm right and they're wrong. And that's where I draw the line. And I'm not talking to that person anymore. And you go, how did we get here? It's because we've let other things crowd in. Instead of finding our identity in Christ and him alone. And so when we miss the gospel, that deception and arrogance starts to take hold. And then we start to judge people. And we start to go, I can't believe anyone would believe that. So how do we get out of that? How do we avoid that? How do we as the church be salt and light in the earth that God has called us to be? That we don't fall into those things. And the answer is we come back to the gospel over and over and over again. What he says there in verse three, for God has welcomed him. You welcome people the way God has welcomed you. You know, verse seven, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies for to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. And so then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's for to this end. 
Christ died and lived again that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. We are called to glorify God in everything. We are called to love people in the way that Jesus has loved us. We are to lay down our lives for those that God has placed right in front of us, continuing to show them what God is like in all things. We want to honor him in everything that we're doing. We want to love people in the way that Jesus has loved us. And so we come back to the gospel over and over and over again. And when we forget that, we quickly go back into these other avenues. And so we need to root our identity in Jesus and what he's done for us. That's why we say here we want to be a gospel-centered church, that we want to be gospel-fluent. We want to be speaking the truth to one another of who we are in Jesus and letting that stand over everything that we do and we say and the way that we operate because we need to hear it over and over again. Because what happens when we're gospel-formed, when we have the gospel standing over us, the good news of who you are in Jesus, that Jesus has done for you what you could never do for yourself, what that does is it puts you in a place of humility. Everything that I am and everything that I have and anything that I will ever accomplish that is of any worth is because of God's grace to me and Jesus, the end. And as soon as I forget that is when I start to go, look at how smart I am. And so I need to hear that over and over and over again. And when that happens, when we're there in the center of that, and we're speaking that to each other, we're reminding each other of that, it also produces compassion. When you find yourself in the case of you're the stronger brother, and you go, I'm pretty sure I'm seeing this right, and they're missing it, but then God gives you compassion. He goes, you miss things all the time. And I pursue you, and I love you, and I continue to come alongside of you. And you go, oh, yeah. Right? See, the truth is we're always the weaker brother. <laughs> Even if there's somebody that's even weaker than we are in a certain area, we're still the weaker brother in the sense of we're still not perfect. We still have blind spots. We're still struggling with these things together. And when we forget that is where we get in trouble. And so I was thinking about how do we, how do we recognize when we're sliding into being, we, we are the weaker brother. We're missing part of it. And I was thinking, that, and this is not perfect and not completely, it's not like this is the way you discern, but at least part of it. If you're 100% right all the time that you're the stronger brother, slow your roll. You're probably the weaker brother, at least part of the time. If you walk around going, no, 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 I am the one that sees all of it, and I see all of it perfectly, and I've got it just right, and everybody else is weak in their faith, you're probably missing it. It's a good indicator. And so one of the things that I help guards against this, and I'm going to end here, and we'll pick up with this next week. You know, part of what he's saying is continue to welcome each other in and don't divide over these things and continue to walk these things out together. Everything that the epistles say, Paul says this over and over in all his letters, to spend time with one another, correct one another, teach one another, rebuke one another, encourage one another, all those one another passages. And what he's saying is you are being sanctified in the way God has placed you in a family of faith. And he uses that to help bring you to the fullness of what he has for you. And if we go, I don't want to have anything to do with those people who disagree with me on this thing, so I'm out. We're going to stunt our growth. We need other people speaking the truth to us. We need people that sometimes go, hey, I think you're wrong. 
I think you've missed this piece. And you go, oh, yeah, I have missed this piece. And so I really believe this as far as like stronger brother, weaker brother. How do you know which one you are? To be one of the stronger brothers, to be growing in your faith, that you're regularly asking that question. What am I missing? That you're asking other brothers and sisters in the faith. What am I missing? What am I not seeing here? What have I not considered? And you ask it with true humility, knowing that you're accepted completely and totally what Jesus has done. That God doesn't love you less if you're wrong on this issue. You're open to correction. Please speak into my life and tell me. And we're called to do that together. That's the way God has designed us to be. I think it's one of the greatest helps to kind of guard us against slipping into that weaker, stronger, where I'm fighting and drawing lines where I'm not supposed to. Continuing to have people speaking the truth into our life. God has designed us that way. He loves us enough that he's done that. And so I'm going to kind of abruptly end here because we're going to pick up with this next week. This is kind of a two-part where it's like, well, I'm stopping here because of time. But would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that our identity is found in you and what you've done for us. I pray that in the areas and the times in our life when we forget that, when we want to take center stage in our life and make it all about us, would you remind us? Would you move in the spirit and show us those areas where we're forgetting that everything that we are is because of you? Would you surround us with brothers and sisters in the faith that would speak the truth to us, that would continue to remind us of what is true about ourselves and the way that you love us? I pray that you just continue to correct us and encourage us in all things, that it would be all for your glory and your honor. Give us a great unity that is only found in Jesus and nothing else. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.